Coming up on today's show, with our first past the post system in this country, are we really getting the representation that we vote for? What does Gabby Petito's case tell us about the way we view domestic violence? Why is this case such a huge deal when there's so many we never hear anything about? And conservatives divided after the election. Should Aaron O'Toole be given another shot or has he had his shot and failed? So when we take a look at the way things broke down at the last federal election, it's sort of typical, right? We see blocks of votes across the country that fall sort of the way we typically expect them to. And there's a couple of ridings or not ridings, but regions of the country that sort of become the turning point. You know, we we knew the conservatives were going to sweep much of the prairies and they did, you know, all but four uh, going conservative. And uh, we just sort of have this regional breakdown. But that doesn't really represent the voting populace of Canada. It's much more diverse than that. So do we need to re-examine how we do things? Let's have a chat now with Colin Walmsley, who is a representative for Fair Vote Alberta and a former national councillor for Fair Vote Alberta. Colin, thank you for joining us this morning. appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, taking a look at this, you know, you would think that um, Canadians are very deeply divided and certain parts of the country feel certain ways about the world and others don't. That's not an accurate representation of the voters of Canada, is it? No, not at all. I think, um, you know, you look at the election results that we had last week and you have all of Western, um, all of the rural Alberta areas, all of the rural Saskatchewan areas voted 100% conservative MPs. Um, you look at Toronto, they voted 100% Liberal MPs, and that's not at all how those regions actually vote. And um, I think that's pretty damaging for our democracy. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, basically we're talking about first past the post, and the way that that works is the entire representation of all the ridings, and as it spills into regions in our country, goes to the one person, even if they only won by one vote, all that other representation is lost uh, because the one person yeah, exactly. is rep- representing so- it. Yeah, exactly. So in each individual riding, one person is given 100% of the power for simply having a plurality of the vote. Um, The problem is when you multiply that over entire regions, you get these entire regions where parties aren't able to compete. And so how are the Liberals supposed to understand the issues that are important to Western Canada, um, especially rural Western Canada, if they aren't able to have members of Parliament that are in those regions? How are the Conservatives supposed to be able to understand, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal? Because they don't have a single MP from any of those cities. Um, and, and, you know, I think that uh, Canadians are quite aware of the, the effects of first-past-the-post, the drawbacks of first-past-the-post that affect them individually, whether that's the fact that they feel that they have to vote strategically in order to right. keep out the candidate that they um, like the least, or whether they feel that they aren't very motivated to go and vote out at all. Um, because it's pretty obvious who's going to win in the riding. And, you know, you look at the lineups of this this past election, and they were two to three hours. Yeah. Um, but what might be a little bit less obvious are those divisions that are kind of happening over decades um, in our country between yeah. the rural areas uh, and the, the urban areas. Yeah, and it divides in two ways, right? I mean, it divides the voters and the way that they behave and the way that they react and eventually switch parties. And it also divides in the way that the party sort of focuses on where they think their representation lies and neglecting everybody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I wrote a a CBC article um, last week kind of talking about a hypothetical voter named Paul. And Paul is a voter in rural southern Saskatchewan who typically votes NDP. Um, But despite the NDP winning about 20% of the vote in Paul's riding, they're never able to elect a member of parliament. And so what happens is that 
uh, the NDP caucuses in Ottawa are overwhelmingly urban, right? They they come from Toronto, they come from Montreal, they come from Vancouver, and so obviously the issues that they focus on are urban issues, the yeah. issues that are going to affect their constituents. And so somebody like Paul, he looks at the NDP and he starts to think, well, you know, it doesn't really seem like the NDP is responding to my needs anymore. Um, and so he looks at the Conservatives, who have a ton of rural MPs. He's like, look, the Conservatives, they have dozens of rural MPs. It seems like they are really close to me on a lot of issues, on a lot of the issues that are important to me. And so the NDP, they lose Paul to the Conservatives. The Conservatives, on the other hand, because they have no urban um, member of parliament, members of parliament, they lose their traditional urban supporters to the Liberals and the NDP. And so what results is that the parties... Um, if they want to compete, they they really have to double down on their base support. And this results in these sort of divisive campaigns where parties are, are really appealing to their bases in order to, to, to turn out voters instead of to reach out to um, these fringe voters. And I think that uh, that's quite divisive. So if we go to proportional representation, it sounds messy. It, it really does, right? Because you our, our system is pretty clear cut. The guy who wins the riding gets the seat. Boom. Off we go. Um, this sort of breaks it down a little more subtly, and we see in some places, to be fair, Colin, it can get pretty messy at times. Yeah, I mean, I think that when people point to proportional representation getting messy, they invariably point to Israel, um, which is a very very poorly designed system where even if you get 1% of the vote, um, you get someone in Parliament and you have these huge wranglings over coalitions. That's not how this would happen in Canada. Um, in Canada, we would either have a, a, a system called either um, mixed-member proportional or single-transferable vote. And these are systems that are in place in Ireland, that are in, system in Germany, that are in place in New Zealand. Um, and if you want to talk about stability, um, you look at Angela Merkel. Uh, I don't even know how long she was the... Yeah. Um, decades in Germany there, but for, for my entire political lifetime. So, you know, I, I don't think that first past uh, that, uh, proportional representation is really that messy. Um, and I think it's quite simple to understand as well. You know, if you get 50% of the vote, you get 50% of the seats. If you get 30% of the vote, you get 30% of the seats. How does it break down regionally then? I mean, because we know that there are bases of support, but like you say, I mean, all the parties have some support from coast to coast to coast. We know that. So, I mean, Mm-hmm. Does it not be geographically tied to the seats anymore at that point? Um, it depends. So there's, there's several different ways that, that uh, this could work. One way is mixed member proportional, which is pretty similar to the way that we're doing it right now, where each region elects an individual member of parliament, and then you have top-up seats. So each region elects someone, and then depending on the popular vote, you top up those seats in order to, to reach proportionality. The other major system is single transferable vote, which means you just have multi-member ridings with a ranked ballot. Uh, so out of each each riding, let's say you make two large ridings in Calgary, each that elects five members. And the first place candidate, the second place candidate, the third place candidate, the fourth place candidate, and the fifth place candidate are all elected, which means you might have three conservatives, an NDP, and a liberal. Um, and what this means is that every urban area is going to have conservative and um, progressive MPs, and every rural area is going to have conservative and progressive MPs. I see, which would ultimately be more accurate and less divisive, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, I do think there are a lot of um, conservative people in urban areas who might be uncomfortable um, reaching out to elected representatives who, who they didn't vote for. Sure. And the same thing in rural areas, you have progressives who might not feel very comfortable with their representation at the moment. 
Very interesting discussion, Colin. I think we all agree that some sort of electoral form would make sense. I mean, this is two successive minority parliaments where the governing party didn't win the popular vote. So clearly, like you're saying, some Canadians feel they're not being represented the way they should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that, again, with um, Canadians with electing these minority governments, I think they, they've shown that they are actually quite comfortable with the sort of governments that proportional representation would yeah. create. You know, the, the sort of governments where parties have to cooperate, where committees actually have teeth and are able to hold the government to account. Um, those are the sort of, the sort of values uh, that uh, proportional representation advocates hold dear, and I think the sort of um, things that would develop out of proportional representation. And Canadians have shown that they're comfortable with that. Yeah, I think so. Colin, great discussion. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you joining us. That's Colin Walmsley, who is a representative for Fair Vote Alberta and a former national councillor for Fair Vote Canada. It's an interesting discussion, and I think you know a lot of us agree that the way that we do it um, is pretty cut and dried, and it's pretty clear, and uh, it's easy, and um, it's not quite as tricky to do. Like this listener just texted and said, would you ask him what the parliament we just elected would look like under this system? Well, it, it depends on how we decide to do it. Would it be ranked ballots? Would it be um, no geographical representation? It's just this party won this many seats, they get this many MPs. So there's different ways of doing it. Electoral reform is a huge discussion, as you know, and something that's been kicked about by some of the different parties. So exactly how it would look, I don't think you can say, well, based on the last election, if we were doing this, is how it would look. Um, but it's it's an interesting discussion, I think, especially in, a, in this part of the world, because I think a lot of Albertans feel like we vote and we send um, the Conservatives to Ottawa, um, but that's it. And we're seen sort of as outliers, right? The, the Prairies are Conservative and BC is NDP and Ontario is Liberal. And it, it's it's much, much more nuanced than that, especially if you take a look at some of the ridings in Alberta are extremely close. So a lot of people who have voted progressive and narrowly lost the election uh, don't have any representation in their riding and very little in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So uh, we'll see. It was something that Justin Trudeau campaigned on back in 2015. Never came to pass. Uh, Will it be something we see in this new minority legislature? Wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, There's other things going on, but uh, we'll see if we can't get it back. How wrapped up are you in the Gabby Petito case? A lot of people are almost consumed by this. Uh, It's been the lead story on American newscasts for a long time. Cable news devoting hours and hours and hours of coverage to this. There's a huge online community Um, that has come together in an effort to solve this. Uh, It seems pretty clear-cut what happened here. If you're not familiar with the case, the short of it is Gabby Petito was um, a 22-year-old who was um, engaged to Brian Laundrie, and they were doing van life. Basically, they travel across the country and document their travels online, and she had a huge following, and a lot of people were interested in what they were doing. Uh, She went missing September 11th. Her body was found later in the Grand Teton campground, um, and uh, he's vanished. He's disappeared. All kinds of questions what happened there. That's the, the long and the short of the case itself, but there's so much more to discuss here. First of all, why do we know about this case is a question a lot of people are asking. Um, why is the Gabby Petito case headline news across North America? It's been discussed a lot in Canada, too. A lot of people say the simple answer is it's because she's a super cute white girl. 
period. End of story. Because a lot of people point out, you know, there are lots of minority women who go missing all the time and they barely register. So, you know, we need to take a look at that. Also, what can it teach us about domestic violence situations and how they affect young women? Because they do quite a bit. So there's a lot of different angles we can look at and maybe learn something about the way we view these kinds of incidents uh, and why this one grabs so much attention. So we're going to chat with Elizabeth Renzetti, who's a journalist with the Globe and Mail. She joins us now. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for your time today. Glad to be here, Shay. So, yeah, why don't we just start, first of all, why are we talking about Gabby Petito? Why do you think this case became such a massive story when there's so many other stories every single day that barely get any attention? Um, That's an excellent, excellent question. It's kind of the central question, and I think you touched on some of the reasons in your introduction. And, in fact, if we think about, like, you know, who can we name, um, you know, women in peril over the past, say, 10 years, uh, Elizabeth Smart or Lacey Peterson, there are people who spring to mind and they almost always fit a typical demographic, which is that they are um, young, middle-class um, white women. Um, and those are the women who are actually not disproportionately affected by violence. So why are we concentrating on them? And I think it's because we have sort of culturally inherited this idea that those are people kind of more deserving of sympathy or empathy than other people. But then there are also, there's this true crime element that you also got at, which I think we can't discount. And it has to do with the mysterious aspects of the um, crime and the fact that people are stuck inside with their computers right now. And so there's a lot of kind of internet sleuthing going on. And we can't discount the fact that she had a pretty good following to begin with. She was quite popular on social media with her van life blogging. She was indeed. And she, um, the, the image she presented of she and her fiancé was this kind of millennial idealized vision of them on the road together in their van, quite in love, picture perfect in front of these, you know, Um, like landmarks of the United States West. And while we know in our hearts that most of what appears on social media is in some ways fabricated, it's not real, you don't see the totality of people's lives, it still is a very alluring picture. And so for there to be this disconnect between the picture, the idealized picture, and what actually happened to her I think was quite shocking for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before, right, in terms of um, what we see on social media is sort of the absolute perfect representation of our lives. But, uh, you know, especially when you're traveling and you're blogging, you've got that huge following. Clearly, we weren't seeing the full picture of Gabby Petito's life. And she was going through some things, some awful things, right? And in that way, it is almost a very sad and tragic metaphor for the crisis of domestic violence that we we face because what happens often is that the couple presents a you know a, a, a happy face to the world and the violence whatever form it takes takes place in silence yeah. behind closed doors in a house and you most people don't know about it and the people who are participating in it don't often talk about it. The woman, it's predominantly women, although men are also affected, uh, don't often report it. 
uh, for a huge variety of reasons. So in this way, it is kind of a really sad metaphor for domestic violence. Um, What about her age? 22 years old. You know, I think when we think of domestic violence, that's not typically what comes to mind. And yet, as I mentioned in the column that I wrote last week, um, according to American statistics, uh, between the ages of 18 and 24 are the ages when women are most likely to report domestic violence. might be that that age group is more comfortable reporting. But it also says something about the fact that we have a very kind of outmoded idea of what intimate partner violence looks like. And it could be that these women, um, something like a third of women on campus, said they've been involved in an abusive relationship. So it could be that these women, you know, they're not in a traditional kind of marriage and, Mm -hmm. you know, with a black eye. They could be involved in some kind of dating violence with a person they're seeing, perhaps even casually. Um, And violence takes different forms these days, too, which we aren't also... Um, really aware of, like, for example, what they call tech-enabled harassment. So that's where one partner uses technology to control, manipulate, and exploit the other partner. So young women are experiencing all of these things, um, and perhaps more often than we realize. And I think one aspect to this case that I think a lot of people are going to if, if it leads to something, uh, and we can all hope that, you know, whenever there's a tragedy like this, it leads to improvements in other areas. A lot of people talking about the fact that concerned citizens called police and reported an incident. I can't remember what town they were. I think they were in Utah somewhere. Uh, yeah. And said that he saw her, hit, she saw, they saw him hit her and reported right. it to the police. And when the police showed up, he managed to convince them that he was the victim um, yeah. And it's sort of the way that we handle these kinds of incidents, generally speaking, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of um, sort of schools of thought now, uh, you know, people who study um, this kind of violence, who believe that we have to rethink the role of policing in investigating and approaching um, domestic violence. So, for example, um, they need police need better training. Obviously, that's the very first thing. Um, they have to get rid of kind of old school ideas about, you know, often they don't want to go to domestic violence calls. They're apparently like the most they consider them to be kind of the worst nuisance calls. And then the other thing is, what if police aren't the people who respond? What if we have, for example, social workers who respond with police backup in case things turn, um, you know, nasty or violent? but that the first people who approach the situation are ones who are actually trained in de-escalation and mediation skills. And that might actually um, head off uh, problems getting worse or the violence getting worse. So what do you think happens with this? I mean, you mentioned other cases, Elizabeth Smart, uh, cases like that. This eventually will um, exhaust its 15 minutes in the headlines and it will move on. Um, Do you think it will change things? I mean, because we're having the discussions now. Why is this case getting so much attention and so many minority cases aren't? Um, why was it so poorly handled? On and on the list goes. Do you think, um, how, how do we motivate that into being lasting change? Well, for me, um, I think two things would happen on a kind of societal scale. We would, for example, look at um, our own crisis of missing and murdered uh, Indigenous women and 
put pressure on the government to actually implement the recommendations uh, of the report, which are two years old now and haven't been um, implemented. We would ask why, what are the systemic and societal reasons why um, Indigenous women face more violence uh, in this country and why are their murders solved at a not solved as often as the murders of white women. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is I would hope just on an individual level that people might be more kind of have their ears perked up around them, like to see signs in somebody around them because in a relationship that might be um, problematic, uh, for example, we don't recognize the, 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 what is called coercive control. So where one partner is very controlling and dominant and doesn't let the other partner like see their friends or, you know, use their phone or something like that. So if we kind of recognize the signs early on more uh, better, we can intervene in our own circles of friends and family and say, Hey, do you need help? Or do you want to talk? Or, you know, is there something going on? Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating story. Uh, I appreciate your time so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's Elizabeth Renzetti, who is a journalist with The Globe and Mail. All right, so we've already had one casualty among the leadership ranks following uh, last week's federal election. Anime Paul out as leader of the Greens. I think we all saw that one coming. Um, that was just a disaster of a campaign, and uh, the leader takes the fall. Uh, now we're going to talk about Aaron O'Toole, and some of you already weighing in. Uh, this listener says O'Toole doesn't have the, quote, perfect political appearance, and he's way too introverted and quiet. I wish Peter McKay was elected instead. I don't think Stephen Harper was pretty introverted and quiet, uh, and a lot of people like Stephen Harper. I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, for me personally... Um, Aaron O'Toole is trying to make some changes among the Conservative Party that some people don't like, but a lot of people do. Um, and uh, if I'm in charge, and I'm not, I'd give him another election cycle to see where it goes. But that's just me. Um, let's have a discussion here. We're going to chat now with Andrew Brander, who is a longtime party organizer who served as chief of staff to former Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raitt, and get his take on this. Uh, Andrew, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. Pleasure to be here. So whenever we go through an election, there, there's no doubt about it. We, we, we take a look at the leadership, especially if you don't win. There's always second guessing and looking back. But let's break down these election results, first of all. Um, you know, it's, it's depending on how you feel about Aaron O'Toole, it seems to me that's how you feel about the federal election outcome. You can find good or bad no matter which side of the fence you're on, right? That's right. I think that's exactly right. Look, I mean, I mean at the end of the day, uh, Aaron O'Toole spent uh, about 75% of the campaign with the key message of the day saying that this is an unnecessary uh, election that Canadians don't want. And uh, what do you get at the end of the day? Uh, the exact same result as before. So if anything, I mean, I think I think Aaron O'Toole can be vindicated in, in some sense of, of saying that, look, Canadians didn't want this election. Canadians wanted uh, a minority government to to work together, and and that's why they certainly did not reward uh, the Liberals, um, nor did they uh, did they you know reward any of the other parties for simply pointing out um, uh, the fact that this was you know a six hundred million dollar cabinet shuffle. Um, you know, when you take a look at what O'Toole did during this campaign, he got criticized a lot for being liberal light 
for moving too far to the center, which I think really divides conservatives. But there are some conservatives who sit back and say, listen, if we want to be elected on a national level, we need to do this. We need to move closer to the center. It's risky. O'Toole took that gamble. Is it going to pay off? Doesn't he need more time to try and implement that, Andrew? So I think he does. I think what a lot of people are uh, are forgetting is is the fact that, you know, Aaron O'Toole really is only the third leader of uh, the newly constituted, quote unquote, newly constituted merged conservative party. And, and I think there's a lot of questions that the conservatives always want to ask after uh, after these election campaigns in terms of uh, in terms of trying to drill down on what the identity of the party is. But in, in reality, um, because the right side of the spectrum in uh, in Canada is is so you know narrow in, in, in the first place, the, the party really has to create um, that that broad consensus and and be that big blue tent that embraces uh, all uh, factions of, of the conservative party and of, of the conservative brand if they're able to or, or if they if they aspire to be, uh, more than what the NDP is, which is, you know, the, uh, uh, official opposition yeah. at best. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think, I think in that sense, a lot of people need to need to remember uh, this guy was leader for one year, uh, and it was a very, very bizarre year in the sense that the prime minister was out every day talking to Canadians, uh, you know, extending his trust that he had already built with Canadians, and in large part. Um, Aaron O'Toole only had a chance to do that uh, when when the media, uh, and this isn't pointing fingers or anything, uh, but when the media uh, afforded him the chance to do so, and and that is is the fair coverage uh, that that media give to uh, all political leaders once an election starts, and you saw that in the in the public opinion polls. If you go back three months ago, um, you know Aaron O'Toole was dead in the water. Uh, his his approval ratings were miserable, mm-hmm. uh, and and to have those be virtually on par with the prime minister on election day uh, is is nothing short of short of remarkable. Unfortunately, when you're asking to be the leader uh, of the G7 nation, uh, I'm I'm really not sure 36 days is enough to do that. Now, I think the criticism that he's facing in some corners, and I think it's warranted, Andrew, is the fact that some of the issues changed throughout the course of the campaign. And a lot of the MPs that were campaigning under his banner said, we weren't even involved in this. We found out when we saw it on the news. He didn't stick to the platform. He made changes on guns. Um, Other issues came up. You know, he campaigned against a carbon tax originally, and then he, he relented on that down the road. So there's a there's an attack on him saying he doesn't stand by the principles that he espouses and he's just going to change as the wind blows and he doesn't even tell the party membership about it. Well, one thing I'd say, I'd say to that is, uh, you know, in, in Aaron's defense, I think he did. I think uh, the, the night he was elected, uh, he refers to this often, the, the speech at one thirty in the morning after uh, a, a little bit of a complication around the Tory convention in terms of uh, counting ballots. But he said very clearly in that speech uh, and set the tone and said, 
you know, this is going to be a new conservative party. This is going to be a party that reflects more Canadians. Uh, and he said that during the campaign multiple times as well uh, in saying, you know, this is not going to be your your grandfather's conservative party. But I do think he set the tone early. Um, so, uh, you know, people people who were surprised by any of these things probably shouldn't have been. Um, but but let's be clear um, and and saying that, you know, the reason why Aaron was doing all these things um, was to insulate himself against the liberal attacks um, from from lessons learned from campaigns in the past. And I think uh, conservatives would be even more frustrated if we had just come through a campaign uh, where we saw the exact same problems plague the party um, that that plagued uh, our, our last campaign where we were explaining every day. And, uh, you know, when we specifically talk about what those issues are, if we want to talk about the carbon tax, sure, we can talk about mm. we can talk about that. But, um, you know, he came out four months ago uh, to do to to tackle that issue. And how many times did we really talk about climate change or conservatives being deniers of, of climate change during the campaign. I actually think that that issue was was handled exceptionally well because we didn't spend the whole campaign talking about it, nor did we want to. Um, but but that wasn't, you know, a ballot box issue for most Canadians. Uh, you know, issues around Indigenous rights um, and and other areas where we could be vulnerable with the LGBTQ community, for example, both issues he started talking about, um, you know, on on the night he was elected leader and in his first speech in the House of Commons. So you really see through this and in the last year that Aaron did have to insulate himself against those liberal attacks, um, he he did quite an effective job, so much so that the first two and a half weeks of the campaign, really, uh, the Liberals were, you know, jumping from one issue to another just to try and find something uh, to to stick to him, and and eventually, you know, we got there got there on the on the issue around guns. Um, but I think that would be a, a, another question the Tories have to look at in terms of. Um, you know, the the importance of that issue with voters. I still don't think voters were going to the polls on Election Day and saying, I'm voting against Aaron O'Toole because I think he's going to give give out assault rifles to people. So so, I mean, I think there's there's questions around that. But uh, if, if if the broader question, obviously, is about red meat issues for conservatives, then I, I do think that there um, is some room in this iteration of the Conservative Party to expand on some of that without compromising this new coalition that Aaron's trying to build. I think there could have been more efforts to broaden policies around free speech and democracy. I think the party uh, can't back down uh, on, on the China front. Um, I also think, you know, there's there's certainly a lot more the party can do in terms of autonomy of the provinces. We've seen this manifest in their commitments on childcare, health transfers, pandemic management, and even vaccines. But I think there's other opportunities within this framework that Aaron set out uh, to to further broaden 
broaden appeal to to red meat conservative uh, voters. Andrew, what about the party itself? I mean, regardless of who the leader is, um, that would be, uh, you know, if we remove O'Toole at this point. Uh, you're now looking at the third leader going into uh, what could be an election at any time, really. There's got to be some sort of an argument for having a bit of stability, regardless of who the leader is. I, yeah, exactly. I think that's right. I think um, I think as as I just went through the the liberal playbook is uh, a tale as old as time, right? So yeah. uh, if if Aaron has if if we are to agree that Aaron uh, did. Uh, in in some way, shape, or form, do a pretty good job at insulating himself. Um, and uh, you know that was the second question we addressed. Your first question was: Was there enough runway for right, Aaron yeah. to build trust? And so, if we're if we're looking at those two things as being the biggest factors, not enough time, and and still some work to do on sort of insulating against liberal attacks, then the 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 worst thing I think the party can do right now is to elect a new leader in which they, the Liberals, will institute that same old playbook next time around. And again, you, you've, you've now lost uh, any time in terms of building, building the trust with Canadians. Um, and, and we know we're going to be vulnerable on those issues again, especially if, if the result from this is a resounding uh, rejection of the direction that Aaron was trying to take the party into, and then and then reverting back to you know a, a, a different iteration or a third iteration, if you will, right? Yeah. Um, of 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 what the conservatives stand for. Um, so so I, I as I said, I I think there is a framework now that Aaron can work within to you know broaden broaden appeal and on uh, back on the right right side of the party. Um, because because I, I think we have to look very closely at the election results, and it's still a little bit early. Um, but we we look to the question of motivation, and and what it seems so far, at least, is that a lot of our voters are are, are still there, but weren't motivated uh, to come out and vote. So I think I think the Tories really need to look at um, where their vote is efficient and where it isn't. Um, uh, interestingly enough, the vote share percentage that the Liberals got was, was the uh, was the fourth lowest they've ever gotten. That includes wins and losses. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so for them to still squeak out uh, a win uh, means that they've figured out something in terms of their vote efficiency and and maximizing it that the Tories have not. Um, and and I know how frustrated a number of your listeners are election after election, supporting a party that overwhelmingly wins in the province, just to have that spoiled uh, by where I live in the GTA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think a bright point, uh, you know, something that I'd point to that's a bright spot for the Tories. Um, yes, we saw some narrowing of races out West in terms of, in terms of the margin for the Tory MPs. Um, but here in the GTA, uh, we saw the uh, obverse effect in, in the sense that uh, the liberal margins were coming down. Uh, so there's about 20 seats now in the GTA that broke for the liberals this time around, where the Tories came a very, very strong second. Uh, it, it would be best for the party to sort of spend their efforts right now figuring out how to pick up those 20 seats 
Uh, and that's the difference, right? Yeah, that that's makes the all difference the difference, too. yeah. Exactly. And exactly. a great discussion. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Andrew Brander, a longtime party organizer who served as chief of staff to former Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raitt. Uh, he wants Aaron O'Toole to be given another run. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Music.